0: Today's episode is a very special one for many different reasons. It's the first episode in which I've been able to take the podcast global. It was recorded in the beautiful settings at Nishama in New York. It's even more special though as my guest today is the wonderful Jay Godfrey. Jay's background is in fashion, he created his own fashion house synonymous with his name Jay Godfrey. He's more recently though entered into the world of psychedelics and that's what we talk about today. He co-founded Nishama, which is a wellness clinic that specialises in ketamine therapy to treat a wide range of mental health conditions. Today we delve into the history of psychedelic medicine, where it comes from, we talk about the stigma associated with the industry and how we get past that. We also talk about how and why ketamine and psychedelics may work to improve Mental health. We also talk about what the future may hold for these upcoming and exciting treatments. Jay, how are you doing today? Thank you so much for inviting me over to Nisharma and showing me around the building. Thanks for having me. Nice to uh, nice to meet you in person and nice to be on this podcast. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great to meet. We've been chatting for a little while now, so it feels like it's been a long time coming. But it's it's amazing to see what you guys do here. But before we get into what you do, let's talk a little bit about yourself. How do you make that jump from being a successful fashion house designer to running a psychedelic clinic that specializes in ketamine-assisted therapy? It's
1: a good question, and it's a question I get a lot. In fact, even before I was a uh, fashion designer, I was an investment banker on Wall Street. And when I was in fashion, everybody said, Jay, I don't understand. How did you become a fashion designer from being an investment banker? So my my life, I guess, has been a series of uh, non non-sensical jumps from industry to industry uh, in some ways I could see how that could be and, and but for me it's made total sense um, but getting from the fashion industry which was really really a great industry for me for 15 years um, I always loved that world and loved expressing myself creatively mm-hmm. um, and everything in life that anybody ever wanted you know money career beautiful life and lovely children great family support living in the greatest city in the world yet something just wasn't right and i spoke to a few friends and one of my close friends said to me you know you should speak to somebody Mm. so i I started going to a talk therapist who was a great therapist who she remains a great therapist and i spent three years every single week spending 350 dollars every single week Didn't miss a week. And I think that was about fifty or $60,000 over the course of three years of talk therapy. And what I recognized was that I wasn't getting where I wanted to be. Uh, there were some good strategies that I was taught, coping mechanisms, but it, the underlying issue still remained. So after, the th- after three years, I said to myself, look, I spent a lot of money. Where was I? And uh, what do I have to show for it? And while I had, again, great coping mechanisms and strategies, something underneath it all wasn't right. And, uh, you know, as they say, help comes from the most unlikely sources. And a friend of mine who uh, you wouldn't suspect was into psychedelic medicine <laughs> um, suggested that I read How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. Sure, great book. Incredible book and, and great series on Netflix as well. Yeah. And uh, I read it. Uh, But I didn't understand why. Why was I reading a book about drugs? I had never done any drugs. So why would I be reading a book about drugs? And what my takeaway was, not only uh, was I incredibly intrigued about this new and somewhat old way of treating mood disorders like anxiety and depression, but I felt that uh, psychiatry would never be the same again. Mm. And so I was introduced to a plant medicine uh, shaman. Facilitator, and uh, I embarked on my first journey in August 2019 with psilocybin, and uh, the cliche goes that it's like five years of therapy in five or six hours, and it was. Mm-hmm. And what I achieved in that one ev- one evening was multiples of what I achieved in three years of talk therapy, and uh, what I call journey work, which is the work you using psychedelic or entheogenic medicines to dissolve your ego and look within, this journey work is the gift that keeps on giving for me. And it is out of that, in May 2020, I had a journey that I didn't think it was fair that I had access to these medicines and I had achieved so much in such a short period of time with them that I felt it was my calling to bring this work into the medical context in the United States uh, because during COVID, anxiety and addiction and depression and mood disorders were running rampant, and so mm. I felt it was my duty to start Nushama with my partners, and uh, here we are. Nice, and is and is going well. You know the the good news and the
0: bad news from a business perspective. It's going quite well, um, but that shows you know showcases the problems that we have with mental health, right? That's exactly it. Can you just quickly explain what a shaman is for people?
1: Yeah, a shaman is. You know, for many, many years, shamans had been looking at kind of as doctors yeah. of indigenous communities. And, and uh, in Canada, we refer to them as uh, either First Nations or indigenous, where I'm originally from. Uh, and every country has a different way of describing them. But the shamans are the original plant medicine healers. And of course, in many of those plant medicines, they are uh, psychoactive yeah. and contain molecules that are the building blocks for the psychedelics that are being used and studied today.
0: Yeah, and so psychoactive being a compound that changes the way we think or feel or perceive the world around us. That's right. You've sort of alluded to psychedelic medicine and it being something that's quite traditional. Um, And I just wonder if you could take us through before what what you take us through with what Nishama do, really some of the history of psychedelic medicine and where it all came from.
1: Yeah, so... People, you know, come to me and say, Oh, this is such a new treatment, Jay. Tell me all about it, I wanna know. And in fact, as you rightly said, it's this is ancient. This has been around for millennia, six thousand years, uh, to be to be exact or and it's fascinating because the shamans of the Shapaibo people in Peru and and South America have been working with ayahuasca, which has the active ingredient of DMT for healing. Um, tribes of Mexico um, and the indigenous people of Mexico, such as Maria Sabina, uh, who really introduced psilocybin mushrooms to North America. Mm. Um, the Buiti tribe in Western Africa has been using a plant called iboga, which contains ibogaine, which is a very, very powerful uh, psychedelic medicine. In many um, many indigenous tribes have been using plant medicines that contain very chemically similar uh, compounds to what is now being studied as MDMA. Sure. Um, you know, there are plants like sassafras, for example, that contain MDA, which is a very, very similar molecule to MDMA. I know I'm getting in the weeds a little, but uh, people were using these heart-opening and entheogenic plants to do just that, to open their hearts, to understand why their bodies either were in pain or why they had disease, and they were looked at through the lens of the mind-body-spirit connection. Mm. And by opening one's heart through these entheogenic plants, they could um, manifest healing, And uh, in many respects, that ancient idea is coming to the fore today, albeit in a uh, through clinical trials with psilocybin, MDMA and others. Um, And so there's a lot of great help using
0: these ancient practices. Mm, Sure. It's an exciting time. And I I find it fascinating how how far back the history of psychedelics go and I think one of the things that really strikes called in me is that they found cave paintings in Africa and I think one of the particular ones I found fascinating was there was a man with a B for his head and they believe this is maybe like an iboga trip or something similar um, yeah. and that's kind of like one of the earliest pieces of evidence we have for human beings They think 6,000 years ago using these psychedelics and then even if you look sort of more out there much more controversial but even into sort of religious literature as well there's a lot of connection you know whether or not not moses was even you know the burning bush was the burning bush was it ayahuasca was it something similar and you know there is a lot of different things i'm not saying like you know i fully believe any of that but who knows i am
2: (laughs)
1: <laughs> you know, uh, Brian Mororescu wrote an excellent <clears throat> book called The Immortality Key that I would highly recommend for anybody who's looking for the ancient sources of how psychedelic mm-hmm. or psychoactive compounds might have influenced religion as we know it today. Mm-hmm. And there is evidence that at Aleusis, um, in ancient Greece, yes. that uh, that the the healing ceremonies that... were drinking
0: this potion, right? That's
1: right. That's right. And it was psychoactive. Mm. And, um, and there are beliefs that maybe, just maybe, uh, Jesus and his disciples were drinking the the Eucharist, which would might have been psychoactive at that time, that's what the immortality key suggests, and uh, it's fascinating.
0: It's fascinating um, because before we were recording, we were talking about this uh, continuity in what people report from their experiences. So when they go on these ceremonies or journeys, or even what they do here at nishama when they have a ketamine infusion, they report this sense of connecting with the divine or oneness, or you know, this overall uh, feeling that is continuous among among you know everyone that seems to do it and you know you can sort of understand why you can trace that back to potential religious teachings
1: Um, oh that's right i mean people in this plane of consciousness as they're walking around in the streets of new york or london or toronto or wherever they are there's a sense of duality there's me and there's them and my life is i'm i'm interested in looking after my best interests and then people who have done journey work with psychedelic medicines, whether it be ketamine here at Nushama in a legal context or in a clinical trial at Johns Hopkins with psilocybin or the MAPS MDMA trials or somebody who's been with the Bwiti tribe in Africa with Iboga, um, there is a universal, almost scary parallel between all of these medicines in that They allow the journeyer or the patient to experience unity in indescribable ways that words just cannot capture. Mm -hmm. And there's a belief that that unity is because these compounds quiet an area of the brain called the default mode network, which houses the ego. The ego being the protective mechanisms that we all put in place so that we don't get hurt again.
0: Mm, Like the stories we tell ourselves, right? The stories that we tell
1: ourselves, the search for validation, the constant explanation of why we believe certain things, the search to be dominated or dominate, Mm. um, righteousness, um, all of these things that keep us us separated from each other are all manifestations of ego. And what's so powerful about these medicines is they they make that ego temporarily vanish, mm. and they allow people with depression and anxiety and addictions to play the witness or the observer to themselves, but without the judgments, without the opinions, without the pain mm. that are associated with uh, their lives. Yeah. So it really allows people to transcend their biggest problems by just looking under the hood.
0: Mm. that's that's a really great explanation and the analogy I use I was talking to a friend the other day and I like the analogy of like we're all onions like in our ego are these layers that throughout our early life and our life we just start to put on these layers we add layers and we add layers and we add layers until we're a full onion with the you know the brown skin around it and psychedelics what we see is that it allows you to sort of start peeling off those layers and maybe even taking a big chunk and, and having a look under under the hood basically until you're getting more towards that core of, of who you really are and, and, and sort of what people would describe as your truth. That's um, right. And I think I think that's a, a really nice way to sort of imagine what's happening.
1: And that's what weaves in with the greatest masters of our of our universe. If you look at whether it's Buddha or Jesus or Mahatma Gandhi or no matter who it is, the same teaching is that the, the whether it's the Christ consciousness or the Buddha within or the highest self that the Bhagavad Gita talks about, these are what we might call in English pure consciousness. Mm. They're the self without the layers of the onion. And those layers get built up over time because between the ages of zero and seven, we all experience something that some would call a trauma or a wound, and it could be something big or small. Mm. Big could be a death in the family, abuse, physical, emotional, sexual, Uh, but it could also be something incredibly minor. Somebody could have told you, you know, you're not gonna make the football team, or that you're too tall, or too smart, or too stupid, or too rich, or too poor, or too something that made you build up walls of ego around you. And those walls, just as you say, are are those layers of the onion Mm. that further Take you away from your truest self. And psychedelic medicine work is all about peeling those layers off one by one. It doesn't all happen at once. And then you start to notice as people do this work more and more, they start to become quieter and they start to become more okay with things as they are, yeah. with less need to talk, less need to explain. It's beautiful.
0: Yeah, ability to sort of cope with what's happening around them in their life because their uh, internal state is a little bit more okay with how it is. You know, it's absolutely. A bit there's more...
1: no uh, there's no attachment to outcome, yeah. and that is something again going back to the great masters. They all taught that, regardless of what sure. religion. There was I am okay whether it's sunny or it's raining, sure. or it's cloudy or and, and Viktor Frankl talked about it in Man's Search for Meaning.
2: Yeah, it is about the,
1: uh, the ability uh, internally to be okay and that the universe has your back regardless of the situation. Yeah. And that's what is so incredibly powerful about these medicines because they you get to teach yourself that mm. using these medicines. It's incredible
0: we've spoken a little bit about the theory of why we think psychedelic medicine is working and what yes. we see in patients and ketamine is a f- fascinating medicine it's treating a variety of mental health conditions mm-hmm. similar to the trials with psilocybin but we're, we're able to use ketamine particularly here in the US you're, you're able to use it. Can you take us through what a patient journey is like or a journey is, journey is like here at Nishama? Yeah uh, so ketamine is an
1: incredibly powerful molecule most people uh, aren't aware of how common it is used in the United States, the UK, and Canada, and most westernized nations. Um, a child, for example, does not go into the operating room and get anesthetized with the same things adults do. Typically, a child is anesthetized with ketamine. At doses ten to twenty times of what we would give in a psychedelic dose, so the safety record of ketamine is well established. Wow! I didn't uh, realize it was quite ten to twenty times the it's dose. That's huge! Huge! Wow. Huge! I mean, to the point where you're giving a child enough ketamine that you can operate on broken bones, um, you know, do open heart surgery, those types of things, um, where they don't feel any pain. So that the the dose is quite massive for mm. for um, childhood surgeries. And then it's also used all the time for pain management in, here in the United mm-hmm. States, where it's conditions like uh, CRPS or uh, chronic migraines, fibromyalgia. And then it was discovered that ketamine at sub-anesthetic doses would create a psychedelic experience. And that's what we built Nushama on, recognizing that the legal framework for other psychedelics like MDMA and psilocybin were forthcoming. And we would include those in our toolkit once the legal framework yeah. provides that. But in the meantime, ketamine is the only only uh, arrow in our quiver, and uh, and our members we don't like to call them patients because we would be implying something's wrong with them. But we believe that that uh, membership at Nishama connotes a feeling of belonging, um, and. Is with the basic understanding that the only thing that people are suffering from is from the human condition. The thoughts that they think and the things that they tell themselves and our role is to get them out of those negative thought patterns. So somebody will come in and their first thing after they express interest that they're interested in psychedelic therapy using ketamine, um, every member gets a full medical intake and that involves uh, medical history, family history, psychiatric history, what medications they might be on. If they're on SSRIs or, or antidepressants, benzodiazepines, um, whether they, you know, we have many people who've suffered from opiate use disorder that might be on Suboxone. So there's a lot of different um, medications that, coexist very, very nicely with ketamine, and some that we just have to stop for the day of. About 90% of the people get past the medical intake. There are a okay. small subset of people, about 10%, that either have uncontrolled hypertension, maybe a history of schizophrenia in the family, um, or that in the judgment of the physician, um, they might not be the best fit for one reason or another for this type of work. And after they get cleared, they'll come in for a, a um, protocol of six sessions. Um, all the evidence-based research that has been done, uh, within the ketamine for mood disorders field has, has really focused on six sessions, and we follow that protocol. It's generally done, uh, we do it mostly here via intravenous. Um, and it's generally done as quickly as three weeks, but, uh, up to six weeks. Okay. And, um, Each session is meant to be built one on top of each other. Mm. And we have a facilitator who uh, gives breath work at the beginning of the session so that the member is fully physically and mentally relaxed as they're going into the session. Helps the member uh, set some intentions. That intention could be as simple as, today I'm going to surrender into the experience and let go. Yeah. always a good intention mm-hmm. or it could be something very specific that you want to understand why it is that your friend bob um triggers you every time you see him and you want to understand <laughs> yeah. what the underlying yeah. condition you want to
0: punch bob in the face what? that's
1: right yeah. what is it about bob <laughs> that's upsetting me um, and then uh then you're off on your journey and the ketamine journey itself through an iv is about an hour long it uh, takes, uh, uh, takes you to a lot of different places. They can tend to be very, very visual, similar to LSD in that manner. Um, it is more dissociative. Uh, it is, a, by nature, a dissociative anesthetic. So it is more dissociative than most psychedelics. So uh, some of the entheogenic uh, medicines like MDMA... It, you can, you actually have more feeling in your body mm. and your body is very kinetic, whereas ketamine, you have less feeling in your body. And, uh, most people lie in their zero gravity chairs here at Nushama with their zero gra- uh, zero noise or their noiseless headphones and their eye mask and they look like they're just having a nap. That's what the journey looks like. Mm. And then afterwards, the uh, facilitator comes back in and they talk about, with the insight that they've gleaned from their experience, what did they learn? They walked in one way and they're going to walk out a different way. And sometimes that integration for somebody with treatment-resistant depression who's got this never-ending um, rumination loop could be that the noise just went off. Yeah. And that is a beautiful takeaway because it gives people a great amount of confidence that the noise can shut off. Mm-hmm. And then there's other people who come with these incredibly vivid stories that, you know, to use your friend Bob again, Bob, you know, they forgave Bob and they'll no longer be triggered by them. And, and it becomes more of a mystical experience. But everybody's experience is different. And even within one member's experience across the six journeys within the protocol, mm. you can have some that are euphoric. Uh, people sometimes report they feel like they've met God. And then others that are extremely challenging that really involve a lot of processing with the facilitator afterwards.
0: Okay. So there's like a three stage process, isn't it? You've got this like introduction, you've got then overall the bits and bobs that go with the actual experience itself, and then you've got this integration. And I think the integration part is really interesting, and we were discussing this beforehand. But there's a lot of optimism. Uh, and a lot of hope a lot of potential hype around psychedelics and some people are now getting a bit worried that things may be going too far and you know there's a lot of venture capital and you know things that it's a money a money making machine it's a money cow and that people are just going to take advantage of this and and we're actually dealing with a lot of mental health conditions which means that people are the most vulnerable and rightly so there should be some caution but I just want your thoughts on you know how do we navigate this space how do we make sure that this amazing potential treatment is delivered in the right way
1: you're right in that there is concern that it is going too fast we share that concern uh we don't believe uh in psychedelic experiences in the absence of integration let's say that uh with our flag down in the sand uh people should not be uh Experimenting with these medicines, it is our fervent belief they should be done under medical supervision at all times, um, with a trained facilitator or integrator. And so that that that's that's first. I, I do know that there are some clinics out there that give ketamine as if you're in like a chemotherapy type setting in a hospital chair, and they give you your IV and they send you on your way. It's a philosophical difference that we don't necessarily. Agree with we. Sure. We believe that that supervision and integration are as important to the experience as the ketamine itself, if
0: not more. And do you see that changing in any way in the in the future? Is there going to be any sort of um, is there any sort of potential risk from other companies that you've heard of that may affect that in a negative way?
1: I believe there's significant risks. You know, I think in any uh, industry there's going to be bad players, and that has been proven. You know, forever in any industry, there's going to be bad players. Um, We're not going to be one of them. Our goal is here to do this the right way, to build slowly. Yeah, sure, we are a business, and we are, Mm. in full transparency, funded by outside sources of capital, as well as our own capital. But from from a point of transparency, we tell our investors if you're looking for a rocket ship and a quick cash out, we may not be for you. Mm. But if you believe in building this the right way and building value, not only for yourself as an investor, but for your members and, and patients and the community, mm. then we might be for you. Mm. So there's a lot of, lot of kind of sharks out there that don't like that mm. from us. and and we've, They've turned down investing in Tunisama, and that's okay. We again, we're here to do this the right way because psychedelic medicine has changed our lives. And uh and that is I speak on behalf of my entire team. There hasn't been one person in this clinic that psychedelic medicine has not changed their life for the better. And so this is an incredible passion of ours. And uh it is based
0: on that passion that we're going to build a great organization and that's where all the best businesses and organizations are founded from right it has to come from passion and not be driven by commercial or capitalist reasons you have to have that passion there and the other things yeah they're going to help you yeah. ha- reach more people and become a bigger business and I guess ketamine is one part and I know you guys have potential thoughts on what's going to happen with the sort of legal framework for other compounds so you've got MDMA which is um, probably on the horizon in the US maybe 2023 2024 is my understanding -hmm. and psilocybin not too far behind but then you've also got plenty of other compounds and I guess we just need to make sure that your way of looking at things is across the board fairly similar to where we go with things and obviously how that is managed is going to be a really interesting space. We so certainly we hope so. so far.
1: We certainly hope so. I, I do foresee within the next eighteen months a legalization of MDMA specifically for the treatment of post traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. Yep. Um there are going to be very, thankfully specific um requirements not only for who can get treated but who can do the treating and who in the therapy component as well. Um, MAPS here in the U.S. is doing an extraordinary mm, so job. It's Rick Doblin, isn't it? Yeah, he's. Uh, we have a room named but after Rick here. I was going to say, do
0: you have one here?
1: Yeah, yeah room number seven. And um, Rick has been fighting for MDMA legalization since it was made illegal in 1984. And um, if he's not nominated for the Nobel Prize for its legalization, I certainly... Where she would be because it's going to change a lot of lives. Mm.
0: It's going to open a lot of hearts. It's a great episode on uh, the Netflix "How to Change Your Mind" documentary that she mentioned earlier. And I would say anyone with, you know, even if you don't have an interest, please go and watch it and just see what you think about these different compounds because they put it in such a beautiful way using the stories of real people. People they go into the studies themselves and they speak to some incredible people in the space, Rick being included.
1: Indeed, and, and MDMA is an incredible molecule because. It really, in its most basic sense, opens your heart. And I think if there's something that we're really struggling with as a society, whether especially in the post-COVID world, is this tribalism of you versus me versus them. And there is a close-heartedness that I mm-hmm. think
0: with the proper therapeutic use of MDMA will really help society. Mm, There's a big push with MDMA and empathy, isn't there? And I think there's a big link there so people can then sort of empathise with other people. It's not called an empathogen for nothing. There you go. (laughs) So this series, I've been lucky enough to partner with one of my favourite brands, Heights. In an ideal world, we would all eat a diverse, nutritionally complete diet that ensures we meet all of our nutritional requirements. However, if you're anything like me, you'll know that life likes to get in the way and that's not always possible. That's where Heights and their Smart Supplement comes in as the best insurance policy for looking after me and my brain. The Smart Supplement consists of just two easy capsules taken every day. It has been formulated by neuroscientist, Dr. Tara Swart and dietitian Sophie Medlin. The all vegan capsules are packed with 20 essential vitamins, minerals, antioxidants and healthy fats which are designed to support your brain, nervous system, immune system and even your sleep. I personally noticed an improvement in my focus, boosting my energy levels, I'm more motivated than ever on my goals and I even make it to the gym more often when I take heights. So if you want to get started with brain care, heights are giving all of my listeners a 15% off your first quarterly subscription with the code STRAIGHETALKING. Head to yourheights.com and use the code StraightTalking, and start taking care of your brain and body today. So ketamine has some potential stigma around it and it's something, you know, that has been seen as a horse tranquilizer and used as a horse tranquilizer for many years and then, you know, it's also used as a party drug as well. Um, you may have seen, if you've ever been raving, people sort of falling around the place and, and potentially is that they were taking ketamine as a recreational use. Do you think that stigma is causing a big problem with psychedelic treatments like ketamine, and how do you see that changing in the future?
1: I think every single day, a new research study, clinical trial, documentary like How to Change Your Mind are all thawing that stigma. But I would counter to the the people who say that it's a horse tranquilizer. Well, most mammals are treated With many of the same medications, Mm. so if you've got, uh, if you've got epilepsy and you're prone to seizures, as my cat was, (laughs) we gave Keppra, I believe, which is also given to human beings. Mm. So, I'm, I'm not sure the idea that horse that the narrative that it's a horse tranquilizer. I think that comes more out of fear. Benefit of science
0: and potential ignorance right not yeah, understanding and, absolutely and not seeing the benefits
1: look we also have 50 plus years of stigma associated with psychedelics that has been perpetuated by all levels of government and law enforcement that uh has has solidified this narrative that might not be so true or that at least is in question so that kind of in my mind, kind of answers the horse tranquilizer answer. As for the party drug look, I think that medications and certain medicines should never escape the clinical setting, and I think ketamine is one of them. Um, you know, uh, it, it's unfortunate that it has landed on the dance floors, and I can't imagine why anybody would want to take it recreationally. Personally speaking, um, because any time I've had ketamine in a clinical setting. It's really dissolved my ego in such a way that I was really face to face with my deepest and darkest traumas, mm. and so I'm not sure why people would want to do that for a good time, but <laughs> apparently people do, and I think it's not it's it's ill advised to do so, and uh, I'm not in favor of ketamine or frankly any other medication um, that's used in a clinical setting to be used as a party drug. I think once people get in touch with their hearts and get in touch with you know, who they are in the Buddha within, the Christ consciousness, the highest self uh, c- context, the light in the Kabbalah viewpoint, <laughs> that they're not going to need any of these things. Mm. Um, but what would happen as a physician, you would know this, but what would happen if morphine got in the wrong hands mm. or... We've seen in America that there's a hundred thousand people who die every year from opiate overdoses. True. It doesn't necessarily yeah, mean that. that in certain settings, in certain painful situations, that opiates may not be of benefit in a very limited way. So I think it's more about the access to these medications by the wrong people that is is an issue,
0: yeah. My view in general is it's not necessarily always the drug, but it's the context that the drug is used in, you know, and and these drugs have particular very positive uses, but put into the wrong hands or into the hands of someone who's in the wrong mental state, then can be incredibly damaging and can, like you said before, perpetuate Mm -hmm. a, a very vicious cycle of worsening mental health and worsening life situation. But it's not always the drug that is inherently bad. that's right it's got got different uses and different purposes
1: as i said ketamine is used to anesthetize children for life-saving surgeries every single day so on one hand people will refer to it as a miracle drug Mm. and then on another hand people say it's a dangerous party drug it's similar i love the analogy of people say well if you ask somebody from the new york police department is our knives dangerous say of course knives are dangerous knives can murder tons of people in new york city every single day and there's fact to that there's also fact that a knife can be used in life-saving surgery or can be used by a chef to create the most beautiful meal Mm -hmm. so everything as you say doctor is context
0: you've discussed it a little bit so far about your experience and, and theory of why ketamine infusions may work for mental health, but can you expand on that a little bit for us? Why does it treat such a variety of mental health conditions?
1: We at Nishama believe fervently that an ailment of the spirit, or as they like to call the mood disorders, and that is PTSD, depression, anxiety, it even incorporates alcoholism and opiate use disorder, eating disorders, obsessive-compulsive disorder. These are all an umbrella term for mood disorders. It's our belief that 100% of them are trauma-informed, which means something has happened at some point in one's life, or they've carried on trauma from somewhere else. Maybe it's intergenerational. And why ketamine and other psychedelics work to treat all of these mood disorders in our estimation is that After the wound happens, after the trauma happens, whether it be capital T trauma, as we discussed before, or lowercase T trauma, there is a sense amongst every one of our patients or members, and anybody with a mood disorder, and it comes down to this, not being worthy or good enough. And that is the basis for so many of these things. And so... As we've talked about the analogy with the onion mm. for ego, ego gets developed over time. And it, you know, we like to say here it's Jevid, justification, explanation, validation, evidence, and domination with a side order of righteousness. And those are the layers of the onion that mm. people put up so that they can prevent themselves from being hurt again. And so how does ketamine unpeel that onion. Well, it is believed that ketamine and other psychedelics quiet the default mode network area of the brain that houses the ego. So you go into a temporary state of ego dissolution where you have a, you no longer identify during your journey as J, the self, but in a connection to the larger universe and all of these narratives of ego fall away and during that experience where the ego is quieted and the default mode network is quieted not only do you experience selflessness and joy and pure love but you get to play the witness and the observer Mm. and so it's like watching a video or a movie of your life but without the ego Without the judgments, without the explanation, without the validation, without the domination, without the righteousness. So you get to see things for what they are. And so no wonder people come out of their experiences when they've been depressed because they've been abused as a child. And they look at the situation as instead of this is what my father or mother or brother did to me and I sit in blame with them and this is why I'm depressed. That's the before. And they come out of their experience and say, you know, when I played the observer or the witness, I was able to see it for what it was. But that person was obviously very damaged and going through their own shit, so to speak. Sure. And because their hearts are open and the Jevid, as I was referring to in yeah. the ego has quieted, they're allowed to look at the situation through compassionate lens. And that's why people come out of their psychedelic experience with a great sense of love, compassion, and forgiveness for what has happened to them. And it really allows people to take that shift from blame, my brother, my father, my sister, my cousin did this <coughs> to me, life did this to me, to I'm okay with it. It's made me who I am. It's made me stronger, and I forgive, and I have compassion mm-hmm. for them. Uh, and it's a beautiful uh, method And way of of rebirth and and reinvention and uh, it allows you to get back to your truest self Mm. and whatever religion you are whether it be Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist, Christian you name it there is a concept of highest self or the light or the Buddha within or the Christ consciousness and even if you don't believe in religion just the pure self. It unpeels that onion and exposes the pure self, which is for everybody, just wonder, joy, love. And how do we know that? Have you ever seen a baby Mm. who's sarcastic? (laughs) Have you ever seen a baby who's angry outside of the conditions of having a dirty diaper or being hungry? No. These are conditioned. And so very much so, this work with psychedelic medicine is about deconditioning and getting returning to your most
0: authentic self. Mm, kids just have that sense of wonder all the time. They're always asking why, and they just see the world as very pure. And they're just very pure beings, aren't they? Because those layers haven't built up. And I think uh, there's a, a lovely analogy that it's like it's that people are using at the moment. It's like therapy on steroids. Um, and often we find this problem with therapy that it's very difficult to break down these stories because there's a lot of emotion attached emotion changes how we think it changes how we act so if you are angry or you have a very strong emotion inside you you may see someone try and tell you something that makes a lot of sense because the story you've told yourself is perhaps you know it's maybe built from trauma and it's not as true as it could be but if you have that anger there you're not willing to go to that place to try and see outside of that theory so um this giving the treatments, whether it's ketamine or something else, being able to dissolve those sort of feelings that you have around those thought patterns, that rigid way of thinking, I think f- it seems like it's allowing people to have more flexible thinking. And I think mental health is steeped in very rigid thinking.
1: Indeed, we had a uh, a member here, uh, and I can't obviously get into too much detail, but she had a or has a daughter that was badly abused by. A man in her life at a very young age 15 or 16 years old and she came in and I, I knew her and she asked me to check on her in the middle of her treatment while she was in her journey and I opened the door and I peeked in and she had this giant smile on her face with tears running down her face and I didn't know what was going on. I knew she was processing something serious. And when I spoke to her after, I said, well, I observed you looked in joy, but quite emotional. She goes, I had come to terms with the perpetrator, and I forgave him. And it was so therapeutic for me to let go of that, because I've been living in so much pain and anger, and it's... Like I've been unshackled. Mm. And so I was so happy, yet so emotional from that. And
0: uh, these are stories that we see every day here. Wow. It's amazing. That is amazing.
2: Yeah.
0: It's hard to really put yourself in that person's position or any person who's had that level of trauma. But if you are to ever think logically and rationally, if you were to tell someone, give them the choice, okay, this has happened to you. Do you want to have thoughts of anger and upset every day about this or do you not like the obvious answer is they would obviously not but if you were to approach someone who's not going through that therapy and tell them okay you have the ability to move past this it's going to be incredibly hard for them because all of the emotion will come up as soon as they start thinking about that thing and i think that just builds on what we were talking about it's before.
1: all they know too a lot of people with mood disorders are uh have been hurt and and wounded for so long Mm. Again, if you go back to the example of zero to seven, so if somebody's 50 years old, they could be struggling for whatever they're struggling with for 43 of their 50 years. And so, uh, well, the habits die hard, of course. Mm. And so, unconditioning 43 years of trauma is no easy task, and that's why... This is not a panacea. This can break down some of the barriers, of course. And this can allow you to take a different camera angle to the trauma and take a different lens to the trauma. And it doesn't mean it didn't happen. And it doesn't mean you're not supposed to think about it and put it out of your mind. Mm -hmm. What it does mean is your relationship to the trauma Mm -hmm. evolves from a position of blame to a position of responsibility and equanimity.
0: Mm.
1: And that's where the magic, as they say,
0: is <laughs> So there are many ketamine clinics in the US at the moment Nishama being one of them And there's, there's a few in the UK at the moment Awaken being one of them Currently the model is that It's not necessarily always covered by insurance And it's certainly not on the NHS yet Is this something you see changing shortly? How do you think things will develop in the space?
1: let me first just give a shout out to the folks at awaken in the uk dr ben sessa is a pioneer in the field of uh psychedelic medicine um and he's a jewel in the uk crown um just an incredible guy guy you want to have a beer with but also a a brilliant, brilliant scientist and and, and psychotherapist. Um, And we're big fans of the Awakened people. Um, As it relates to insurance coverage in the United States and the UK and in Canada, eventually the insurance companies will recognize what you and I are talking about, which is They're going to compare the cost of treating somebody with psychedelic medicine. So just to give an example, in the United States here at New Shama, we charge $4,500 for the full treatment Mm. protocol. So that's six sessions plus a maintenance session. So technically, it's seven sessions. So roughly $600 per session. And the insurance companies and the NHS and Health Canada are going to want to compare what costs more. Is it $4,500 today? Or a lifetime of psychiatric medication, a lifetime of emergency rooms dealing with people who've attempted suicide, the lifetime of car accidents because people are drinking under the influence, um, or driving under the influence, I should say, a lifetime of overdoses, a lifetime of spousal abuse. So they're going to determine, I think pretty quickly, that... This work with psychedelic medicine is far more not only efficacious, but Mm. cost-effective. It takes time, and it takes data, and it takes clinical trials, which of course take money. And the drug companies don't like something that you can't take forever. And so there are certainly hurdles, um, but I am so incredibly optimistic. Why? Because I get the great fortune of being here at Newshama every single day and seeing these stories of people being unshackled from the hell of depression or addiction or mm. ptsd or or anxiety and it's beautiful yes yeah. it's, it's uh it's one of the most beautiful things i've ever seen
0: mm. i think that's why i've been captured by psychedelic medicine um because it's an emerging space we have some some really positive news with the trials and and some really positive, you know, data. But actually it's the stories and individual stories. And I'm actually quite envious of the fact you get to see them because it can be tough working in a medical profession. Um, I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I've spoken to a lot of psychiatrists. Uh, I have some good relationships at home and, and it's one of the reasons I didn't go into psychiatry, mental health being my sort of interest. But I find... Um, you know, opening up here on a personal level, very, very frustrating when you can't change how someone is doing long term. You can't get that cure or you can't get that, you know, that, that win, you know, and then that's like part of the battle. You want to be a detective in your job and then you want to give them treatment that really works. And that's been really tough for mental health for a long time. And we're seeing that on the ground with, you know, I've done a lot of research recently, particularly into youth mental health um, and our CAMS, so Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services. Mm. They're just rejecting referrals all of the time, you know, unless it's a real, real risk to life um, or a real threat. They are so inundated that they're really struggling. And Absolutely. I'm not saying give psychedelics to kids by any means, but I'm saying that we are really struggling to cope with the mental health burden that we have. And then suddenly this is coming along and you see these individual stories. And it's only a matter of time, I believe, for the data to collect that and if we make sure we do this in the right way this is by no means a panacea like you say but if done in the right way it's an incredible like to use your analogy arrow to the quiver you know it's an incredible tool that we can use in this fight indeed indeed and you know it involves a
1: broad alteration in the way the system thinks yes because it is very profitable to treat symptoms as we've been doing for years. (laughs) So somebody, whether it's back pain, headaches, whatever the symptom is, it's profitable to give them a medication that a big pharmaceutical company gives, and it's even more profitable to keep them on that medication for a long time just to continually treat the symptoms. Here, people like companies and organizations like Nishama and Awaken and... MindMed and a Thai Life Sciences and people in the psychedelic field are like, well, wait a sec, maybe we should be looking at this a little differently. Looking at symptoms doesn't ever look at the underlying issue. And so with psychedelics, this basically cracks open the outer shell the onion again peels <laughs> back the onion to see what's underneath it all, mm. so that once you transcend that trauma, that wound, you don't need to continually be on these medications. Might you require? And the data, the jury is still out on this, but uh, might you still require uh, one or two journeys every year, so that you can come back into your heart? Maybe. I can't see any downside
0: to that if it's well if, if it's done under medical supervision. Surely it's potentially better than um, having to take a medication every single day at you know a very high dose a lot of the time for, for mental health conditions because we just have traditionally tightened up the dose and that comes with multiple side effects and multiple potential cardiovascular risk long term. You know there's been lots of different issues and so if it's a well controlled. Infusion of ketamine or is it, you know, um, a pill of psilocybin that we take in the future or or whatever it is, then with no toxic dose of many of these drugs, ketamine is slightly different, I believe, but, um, you know, and then, you know, you're managed in a medical setting and then no side effects after that, hopefully, then surely that's better than having to take something every single day. We've seen many
1: members come in here uh, with six milligrams of Xanax to go to sleep. Wow. And then you ask them what their drinking habits. Oh well, I have a glass of whiskey right before bed as well. And so you could imagine the pandemic or epidemic that's going on simply with benzodiazepines on them on their own. The danger of stopping six milligrams of Xanax cold turkey is, I believe, and you might know this better than me, is probably a cardiac arrest or some other complication like a stroke um, and i think that's pretty dangerous and yeah. but but the the system buries their head in the sand on, on things like that yeah. and uh, no wonder they're threatened you know it's profitable so they bury their head in the sand but for for short acting Ketamine, or hopefully in the future, MDMA is psilocybin, mm. where you can do three, six journeys and get to the underlying issue. And I, I, I think that's much more
0: preferable, if you ask me. Mm. Unfortunately to use a cliche, the money does make the world go round and that's been entrenched in, you know, the system that we have at play and sadly that's affected healthcare for quite some time now and I, I think a lot of people have come around to the realization of that. And I'm by no means saying that big pharma or pharma is not beneficial in a lot of ways. You know, incredibly, incredibly important treatments, does a lot of life saving things, um, particularly for acute emergencies and it's where we sort of fall down and I think there's a a pretty decent understanding of this now and it's fairly well accepted that we do fall down when it comes to chronic disease whether that's mental health or otherwise Um, there is some things that we perhaps could do a lot better in terms of putting resources into preventative medicine unfortunately the way the world works for different reasons I was chatting to a friend the other day but the NHS is We have this pie of resources and a rather big chunk is being used on crisis work. So people that are really sick already, you know, whether it's so take the mental health example, it's, you know, sort of therapy for people that are a treatment resistant depression who are suicidal. So a lot of therapists are used there. We're using heavy duty drugs and antipsychotics to keep people from, you know, being psychotic or being really, really depressed. Um, And so for us to say, okay, well, let's take some money out there and put it into, we have a pie, so we want to put more money on the other side, which is preventative, which is only a small little pie chart, uh, piece of the pie, should I say. And to get more money, you have to create more money because no one's going to take money from the people in crisis. You can't. It's inhumane. That's right. But you need something to make more money or more resources to put into that preventative side and that has to be done systematic change uh, and you also need innovation i think i think technology is the way forward with that um or it's you know things that potentially like a new treatment like psychedelic medicine which you have a little bit of a shift whether it's done through private means or we incorporate into things like the nhs or insurance Indeed. Um, and that will hopefully change the game a little bit for us
1: i think it will and i I think uh you said a little earlier, the stories are going to change everything. Fortunately, as every day goes by, you know the uh, the MVP in the NFL, the National Football League, said, Aaron Rodgers. Right? Yeah. I listen to his
0: podcast and Marcus Aubrey. One That's anyone right. wants to listen to a great podcast, amazing. Those two going at it for two and a half hours. Two men speaking about their vulnerability and you know their journeys. Um, if you find this interesting, you'll find that far more interesting. That's right. That's incredible. right.
1: But uh, you know, he talks about this idea of how his performance as a football player, American football player, just got so vastly improved after he got into his heart and his soul, and he shed some of the
0: and, and he became vulnerable. It made him so much stronger, both physically and, and mentally. He won MVP the year for for the first time the year after going on his first ayahuasca yeah. journey. Yeah, he went to see this shaman, for anyone that doesn't listen to the podcast, he went to see the shaman that Marcus Aubrey had been going to, did his ayahuasca trip, he talks about it in detail, it's kind of fascinating to listen to, and then he came back and he just, you know, was the best player in the league in the whole of the NFL, two years in a row.
1: Right, and, and, like, and uh, there's many of those stories. Mm. It's stunning, and I'm not suggesting anybody, sh- you know, should just hop on a plane to Peru and just go do ayahuasca, not. but... uh It just—it's just an anecdote. Yeah. In the tapestry of anecdotes of how powerful these medicines can be if they're used appropriately.
0: Yeah. Hey guys, this is not an ad. It's just a little message to say that at this point in the recording, there was a slight technical difficulty and one of the cameras stopped recording which was also connected to the mics. So we did capture the last sort of 15 minutes or so, but the quality is not so good. And the camera that was recording Jay disappeared. So I'm really, really sorry. I hope it doesn't affect the end of your listening experience, but the conversation is really good. I hope you stick with it. Lots of love. So for anyone that's wanting to find out more about psychedelic
2: medicine, wanting to explore the world of psychedelic medicine, what would be your advice to them? You know, there's a lot of great Resources out there. Uh, as we talked about before, Netflix has a series on how to change your mind where it looks at like 4 four-part series. Uh, Michael Pollan did. And I think it gives a great kind of intro and overview on the power of these medicines. Um, MAPS here in the United States, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. They're the organization that's really focused on getting MDMA approved for PTSD. You know their website and their Instagram is a wealth of information. And look, as as a organization in the psychedelic realm, we believe one of our jobs not only uh, to create a safe environment for people to look within. Another one of our responsibilities is education. Right? So, on our own Instagram at Mushana Wellness, we do spend a lot of our our uh, resources and. Uh, bandwidth of educating people on not only what ketamine can do in the here and now, but what the future of psychedelics look like and really kind of destigmatizing and um, frankly, uh, uh, just providing enough information so people can make their own decisions uh, without government bias and without the overhang of the drug war, which has been a pretty colossal failure. I would definitely agree with them. You did allude earlier to some of the reasons why we've had you know, a ban with psychedelics and, and some of the problems that we had in the, in the sort of 60s and, and what led to you know, the criminalization of, of these substances. I wonder if you could just open up your view on that before we finish. On the drug war? Mm-hmm. Look, I think uh, it's been a failure. Um, people should not be thrown in jail for exploring their consciousness. Uh, it's a different thing if you're trafficking it, of course, or using it unsafely. Or, but I don't believe people should be thrown in jail for, for using theogenic or psychedelic medicines. And I think the decriminalization movement that's sweeping across the United States is, is evidence that many legislators and law enforcement agencies are starting to look at it, uh, psychedelics through different times. Um Cannabis is widely legal in the United States, and unfortunately, the criminalization of cannabis and other med- uh, medicines that were on the Schedule One unfairly uh, incarcerated tens of thousands of people um, of color, and that, looking back, is completely unacceptable. And I think it's a huge failure. And uh, to, to, not to plug Johan Hari again, but he wrote another book called Chasing the Screen, which is the history and the failures of the drug war, and specifically touched on opiates. And what he had said, which I found fascinating, was that the problem with opiate abuse didn't happen because the doctors gave their patients in pain an opiate. The problem started when they stopped it. And the problem at that point came where the patient who would be in need of pain of relief would unfortunately not be able to get it in a clean way from their doctor. Would go to the street and get a questionable source. And we're seeing it in the United States all the time uh, where about 158 people per day die from fentanyl per day. So, so um, my view on the drug war is it's, it 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 has been a failure. It doesn't mean we should be running around the streets and have drugs everywhere, but I think uh, there's a lot that the medical community can do to treat people who are victims of trauma um, in an uncriminal manner. Mm -hmm. Criminalising or persecuting someone who is an addict for their habit, where if you actually look at what addiction is, the person is trying to connect with something because they've lost something else in their life and they don't have that connection there and putting them in a cage basically is, is you know, it's kind of perverse in a lot of ways. Um, How would you feel about putting somebody who's depressed in a cage mm. when you put it that way? Because if, if we genuinely believe that the source of all these mood disorders, addiction included, is trauma, you're going to punish somebody and use government resources to do so and keep them in a the cage for their entire life because they were beaten as a child or they witness something that nobody else should have to witness and they're having trouble dealing with it, makes no sense to me. And it's proven to be a failure. Yeah. Mike Pollan calls it a war on people, does not a war on drugs, which I think is, is a pretty good way to put it as well. That's right. You um, run a fairly uh, busy and very successful business. And I'm interested to know how you look after your own mental health. It's a great question, because you said Psychedelics like aren't to panacea, I believe like like prayer, looking after your mental health is a practice. And for me, every morning I get up and the very first thing I do is meditate for 20 minutes. I, I was trained uh, in transcendental meditation. So that's been a practice of mine for about a decade now. Um, and I believe every single morning is a time to honor thyself, not only with meditation, but I journal and I spend about an hour by myself reading and journaling and meditating uh, and it's a great way to start the day Uh, I think you know my wife is a registered dietitian and believes uh, as I do in the power of exercise and immersing yourself in nature while you do so and so the combination of that and the practices of meditation journaling and reading have been a godsend to my life and uh, there's not a day out of 365 that uh that occurs without in incorporating those practices. And it's really been life changing for me. Mm. That consistency is impressive.
0: Uh, that hats off to you for that and you did mention earlier that you have used the treatments that you get here as well and that's sort of, do you see that sort of something that's a little bit like a top up
2: or is that an expansion of, of your sort of mind and, and what you do? How do you feel? I believe in the, the long term people are gonna use these entheogenic and psychedelic medicines not only to treat those with mood disorders with diagnoses, but I think there'll come a point where society will be okay in treating people without diagnoses. Why should we have to wait till somebody's got PTSD or alcoholism or eating disorder? I think it's, that's not fair to let people do that. So if exploring your consciousness is an antidote to all of that, uh, as it has been for me, um, I'm, I say all the power to you. And so I would imagine organizations and psychedelic wellness centers like Nishama in a number of years time will have not only ketamine, but MDMA and psilocybin as legalized tools. And they will be treating both those with diagnoses and those who are looking to improve their conscious, improve their lives through the expansion mm-hmm. of their consciousness. And I guess you've got two, two strains
0: for reasoning of that as well. You've got the moral strains, sort of preventing people from a human perspective. Preventing them from going through those things. Surely it's better yeah. to prevent them from becoming suicidal, prevent them from becoming depressed, I'll prevent them from having PTSD. But then you've also got the economic side, you know,
2: days of work lost due to mental health, or, you know, someone does uh, unfortunately commit suicide. You know, there is a massive potential economic cost that if we prove that these things work in both a treatment setting, you know, the, the logic applies potentially to fairly well people or people that haven't yet got a diagnosis. And I think that's fascinating. Great conversation. Love that a second. Let's wrap up with the question I ask everyone. And that's, what's your one best bit of advice for someone looking to improve that health and happiness? Learn how to breathe. You know, their entire spiritual disciplines and religion based around the idea of stopping and letting... The breath go through your nose and out of your mouth and vice versa. And it is, it never ceases to amaze me how the human body is so self-regulating when it's done with intention, when you look at this as your own best pharmacy. And so those who are looking to improve their mental health, I think the quickest most economical most efficacious medicine is from your breath and if you can tap into that whether that means downloading an app and following the directions or going to a meditation class or just stop it five or ten times in a day and take a few breaths that is an investment that pays more dividends than it was anything fantastic thanks Jay appreciate it
0: pleasure I really hope you enjoyed the conversation today once again apologies for the technical difficulties absolutely classic that it happened when I was over in New York recording with Jay but I hope the conversation was good enough to keep you hooked if you do enjoy the podcast please give it a like subscribe and tell people about it it means that we can get this out to as many people as possible catch you next week We are living in a mental health crisis and it's never been more important to talk about these kind of subjects. Please don't hesitate to contact me at The Straight Talking Doctor on Instagram and be sure to check out The Straight Talking Doctor podcast available now on all streaming platforms.